the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. It is 4.06 on the Central Coast on this Monday, December 18th, 2023. You're listening to the Dave Congleton Show. In about an hour, Aaron Steed is uh, facing off against the federal government. They want $15 million. We're just going to talk. Michael Latner, after that, updates us on everything related to voting. It is a Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Always good to be in conversation with Michael Dunn. I love this topic. We're going to talk about wealth. We're going to talk about wealthy men today versus wealthy men 100 years ago. But the key thing as we welcome back Michael, it turns out it's all men. Michael, how are you? Good afternoon, Dave. How are you? All right. Is there such a thing as a billionaire woman who's not divorced from Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos? Currently, absolutely. Back in the day, women couldn't own property and they couldn't vote, so there wasn't a lot of billionaire women back in the day. All right. Who would be who would be on your list today? Uh, the woman who invented Spanx, but she actually married a billionaire who made his money off of net jets. And there's probably dozens of women um, on there that I just can't think of off the top of my head. You reach out to me with this topic. Why? You know, I, I grew up um, in Morro Bay with a single mother. And and I was always kind of in the shadow of of Hearst Castle, and uh, I remember going there when I was twelve years old, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And so in the back of my mind, it always stuck. Um, it's like, wow, I, someday it was really really the Hearst family is really the only billionaires that the Central Coast, in, in in my knowledge, has ever kind of spawned, and they're modern day kind of billionaires. And so somebody asked me, they said, look, Michael, you're a you're a brand expert. Um, and you focus quite often on helping luxury brands do more work. It's like, can you write a long-form essay about luxury brands in the past and the future? And I'm like, well, I can. But when I started talking about the people, and I think you've heard me say this before, a business is boring, but the human stories behind business are fascinating. And I was thinking, you know, William Randolph Hearst was basically raised by a single mother because his father maybe came four times a year because he was in mining up in up in Nevada. And so I thought... I want to help tell that story about how the ultra-wealthy of the past were very similar from the ultra-wealthy now. The only thing that really has changed is not how they use wealth in the human stories, but it's how much wealthier as a percentage that our ultra-wealthy billionaires are as they were over 100 years ago. So we go back to the so-called Gilded Age, what, late 1800s, early 1900s? Yeah, the Gilded Age was termed by uh, probably a fan of yours, Samuel Clemens, yeah. um, a.k.a. Mark Twain. And he, he wrote and he coined that term. And then historians glommed onto it. And it was really the time from the 1880s to the very early 1900s. And, it, and, and the Gilded Age happened because of the technology of the day was really taken off. Um, modern mining, steel. And then the railroads. Back in, back in um, 1918, the number one industry in the United States was trains. You know? And they fed, you know, they fed through. Well, what's the number one technology where it's most of the money now? Technology. 
Back then, trains were magically technological yeah. and the telegraphs were. But if you look back at California, especially on the Central Coast, what were the wealthiest people in the U.S. made before the Gilded Age? Farming, ranching, mining. Guess so, all right. That's how, um, that's how George Hearst, William Randolph Hearst's father, made his initial money because he was a, worked on a pig farm in Missouri and he wanted to take a wagon train to the U.S. When, during the gold rush. He was a year behind because he got cholera on his first wagon train. He had to stay back. He lived, luckily. By the time he got to California, all of the biggest uh, claims were done. So he actually went to Virginia City. And by virtue of him being a great uh, ge you know, uh, geologist and by him seeing things that other people did, he got 1-6% of the Comstock load, which is the biggest silver mine in U.S. history. Hmm. That's where he made his fortune. And then diversification happened. He started buying farmland. And guess what? The first, one of the first big pieces he bought was San Simeon. It was 260,000 acres back then. If you think San Simeon to Halone to Shalom, he owned all of that property. That's amazing. So in terms of the Gilded Age, who are the names, who are the wealthy of the Gilded Age? The number one wealthiest, and it's the only time I'm going to use notes because I didn't want to forget, it was John D. Rockefeller who made his money in oil. And back then he was worth $1.2 wealthiest person in the world. That's only worth only $21 billion today. There was Andrew Carnegie. He's down further on the list. $200 million, $2.64 billion today. J. Ogden Armour. What do you think he was? Well, Arm & Hammer, his yeah. package goods. He was worth $125 million, $1.8 billion today. The Vanderbilts, he was the railroad. He was only worth $100 million, $1.6 billion today. Then there's J.P. Morgan and banking. There's three other bankers ahead of J.P. Morgan. Guess what? He was tenacious. He hung on. He was worth $70 million in 1918. He's worth uh, $1 billion today. And then there was George Hirsch, and I'm surprised he wasn't on the list, but he probably wanted to fly under the radar because he was a blue-collar person. George Hirsch was better suited to be actually rolling up his sleeves on the job site, in saloons, and in brothels. So he probably wanted to, didn't know about Forbes. William Randolph Hearst, on the other hand, probably really wanted to be on that list. Hmm. So why are the billionaires today so much wealthier? They learned because that's a lessons. big jump. They learned the lessons from the history, and I think that the reason technology is now is is there are latest magicians. You know, it wasn't the printing press, it wasn't this. It's like they do things that most of us can't. And if you're in the lead of that pack, you make absolutely an extraordinary amount of money. I mean, look at Elon Musk. Elon Musk, his first company was with him and his brother, and they made a software directory, and they sold it for. You know, I think four million, and they eat, they made two million out of it, and then each of them leveraged that investment. But Elon Musk leveraged it mostly all into Tesla, and he didn't buy a bunch of homes. I mean, he learned from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs didn't own a bunch of property other than Apple. Well, he also got a help from the federal government, and he made most of his money off of Tesla. Then he did SpaceX. That's making a lot of money. And then the first time he really kind of failed is when he went into something that he didn't know and he thought that he could, which was media. But who was the very first modern-day equivalent of a billionaire, the first media mogul in the world? William Randolph Hearst. He started in newspapers. His father, George Hearst, bought 
the San Francisco Examiner because he wanted to be in politics. He got tired of, you know, of not being in charge of our, our thing. And, and he finally ended up making senator from California. He bought the San Francisco Examiner because he wanted to do that. But remember, George Hearst was from Missouri. So he was really a Democrat because he remembers what the South went through. There was not a lot of Democrats here at the time. Most of the newspapers were Republican back then because the Republicans were the North and the people that were for the Union Army. Um, so his paper was a Democrat paper in a Republican town. The DeYoungs, I think, were the Chronicle. And so George Hearst is sitting on this newspaper that was losing money. William Randolph Hearst was kind of a mama's boy, so they sent him to Harvard. He dropped out, because he, not because he didn't have the brains, because he partied all the time. Hmm. And so he worked on the, Nation, or the Harvard Lampoon, and he thought, Dad, give me some property so I don't have to be penniless, or give me the newspaper. I can make that happen. And he was really studying what Pulitzer was doing back in the day. Well, it's interesting, this pattern, because you have like um, Hearst and Rupert Murdoch and Jeff Bezos. They accumulate a lot of money. And what do they do? They get into media. My theory is, Michael, that they want to control the narrative. That's exactly the case. Okay. And then, you know, when 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 William Randolph Hearst started in newspapers and he said, you know, I, I need more than one newspaper and he flew back to the East Coast where his mother used to love high society back there. William Randolph Hearst remembers growing up on a ranch. His friends were cowboys and vaqueros and things like that. He did not like upscale society. Sounds similar to a, yeah. a, another billionaire we talked to. Donald Trump didn't like upscale society. He was in Queens and they like lifted their nose. I'm not sure he's a billionaire. Well, he was. Okay. You know, not know if he was now, but but yeah. but back then, Hearst and then Hearst kind of wanted to follow his father. He went back to the East Coast, bought a newspaper uh, in New York, bought a newspaper in New York, and then he 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 decided, you know, I need to start in New York again. He didn't like that, and then he got into magazine publishing, Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Motorsports, and then finally he got into radio, and because of his love for Marion Davies, his mistress and lifelong companion after he and his wife uh, separated but did not divorce, got him into the movie business. He was the first media mogul in world history. Yeah, yeah. All right, Michael Dunn is here. We're talking about men with wealth historically and currently. A lot to pick up on. We'll be back after these messages. You're listening to KVEC. You're just joining us. We're in conversation with uh, Michael Dunn. We're talking about the wealthy, the wealthy of today, the wealthy of the Gilded Age, drawing comparisons between the two. And I said at the beginning, uh, these all happen to be men, but let's not um, overlook the role that women played in some of these relationships. Yeah, I'm not sure how women played in most, but I, I just recently, with the help of the people that work at Hearst Castle, got to do a lot of, of reading for some things that they, they had for me. And, and frankly, um, William Randolph Hearst's mother was uh, super protective. He was an only child, and, um, and she was a teacher in Missouri when George Hearst married her. Of course, she was 20-something years younger than George Hearst. Um, when George lived there, she was eight years old, and he came back to visit his dying mother, and she was 18, 19, and she was teaching. And so she spoke two languages. She liked history. So when the well started happening for her, she liked to take George to Europe and 
and tour Europe, and she got him tutors, and she taught him the love of arts and the collection of antiques, statuary, medieval. I mean, if you kind of remember back then, it was also the right around the time of World War One, and after that happened, especially in Southern Europe, the economy got so bad, just like now, when something really rapidly happens to the economy, wars, famine, things, art shifts around. And yeah. we're still using art as a store of value now, and it's kind of a stealth way for the ultra-wealthy to hide their well, hide their riches. Obviously, we know that Marion Davies played a major role with William Randolph Hearst. His wife, Millicent, was before that. And, and, and before Millicent, his, his mother was so protective over him. George loved young, pretty performers. And he fell in love when he was at Harvard. He fell in love after Harvard. And she basically said, look, if you see this woman, we're not going to give you the newspaper in San Francisco. He, she basically broke up a relationship so that... She got him to do what he wanted. She passed away in 1919, and after that, he got the, all of the inheritance. He didn't have to ask for mom's permission anymore. Hmm. Um, so Millicent, his wife, and they had five sons with, was really instrumental in kind of some of the original ways that Hearst Castle went. But what the one character in this that just fascinates me to no end is Julia Morgan. So William Randolph Hearst got his love of art and architecture from his mother, and he was just an avid collector his whole life, which cost a lot of money. And so he had a vision of what he wanted. There used to, you know, if you, if you look from the beach up to Hearst Castle, it's three miles as the, clo the crow flies in five miles. But Hearst went there with his father, built that. They would take uh, horses up to the top of this hill. It was called Camp Hill. And they would glamp back then. And And when he first started, he talked to... Julia Morgan, the first American licensed architect, the first female, and she's done more architectural assignments than um, Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm. And, 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 and out of that, Hearst Castle was number 503. And if you think back, it's like, oh, that was, was like the number entire... Of her projects? Yes, okay. five, the 503rd project. But that was for everything. And back then, she had a civil engineering degree. So that was just a granite hill. What, what did she have to do? She had to bring water there. She had to have hydroelectric power there. They had to bring in five acres at five feet deep topsoil for building. And, and, and she's a woman. She had no property. People didn't listen to her. She's five feet tall. She managed and project managed that entire thing from the interior design to the architectural planning to hiring an engineer that can build that. It just fascinates by how this little five foot tall, shy woman ran a city on a hill that built a city on a hill. Yeah. I'm just trying to think if there's anybody currently. Well, I guess um, they're no longer married, but Melinda Gates certainly influenced Bill Gates. She did influence Bill Gates, and and, um, and, and, and Bill Gates is not as warmly received since she departed his life as, as he is now. You know, matter of fact, he's been called out because I think he has a yacht worth... Eight hundred million dollars. You know, well, right now, too, the the, U, the U.S. just confiscated two years ago this three hundred million dollar yacht that is parked in a boat, and 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 we basically saying, hey, look at what the Russian oligarchs are doing. I want to say, hey, look at what the American oligarchs are doing, and both the right wing and the left wing are kind of calling that out. Question coming in on the text line: Who will be the wealthy in the future? In which industry? Care to predict? Yes, I think it will be uh, – I think it, it – unless Elon keeps 
wrecking his um, his reputation. It will be people that haul in space, not not space travel tourism, but hauling in space. I think that has a potential to be much larger than Tesla ever could. Hmm. Tesla is going to end up making most of their money in the future off of the operating system and their b- battery kind of uh, effort than they will off the vehicles. If you're looking at all the wealthy people 100 years ago and today, are you noticing any traits that determine success? They usually all make their most of their money, with the exception of like Warren Buffett, who is just a straight investor. They usually make their first big money by being myopically focused on one thing, and then they become the leader of that one thing, then they can usually parlay it into something else. How much of it is inherited? I don't know what I don't know on that, but 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 if you even look at Mark Zuckerberg, his father was a dentist in a well-off suburb. It allowed him to not have to work his first job. It allowed him not to have to work in Harvard. And so it, it might not be ultra-wealthy, but it's really hard to write out of school or whatever, focus on something. And even Gates's father was, was a high-end attorney up in Seattle, so he went to private schools. I think that you'll find over and over that that's the case. They, they go to these Ivy League schools, and what do they make at the schools? Do they learn education? Absolutely. They learn contacts. But there, there um, seems to be millionaires, billionaires who they get help from their parents and they deny it, you know. Oh, I, no, I didn't take any money from my parents. I, I made everything my own. William Randolph Hearst basically tried to tell the world that he was a self-made man. Back then, I don't think many people might have known about his father's wealth, although he was a U.S. senator from California. Um, Donald Trump has done the same thing. It's like, look, I got a loan of a million dollars, and I, I parlayed it myself. It's, it's hard to basically tell somebody, it's like, no, I got a leg up or a, or a head start from my parents. So with a minute to go, here's the question. All these people we're talking about from the Gilded Age, all the people we're talking about today, if you could have dinner with one of them, who would it be? Andrew Carnegie. Why? He was, he was raised, he had nothing. I mean, he really did, like George Hurst, made all of his money on his own. And then he realized toward the end of his life, after he bought Jamestown, all these resorts, most of them want to buy resorts and leave a legacy, and he gave us the public library system. You know, I feel as though a lot of wealthy people, as they get toward the end of their life, they want to give back. I think he was really one of the first to do it in a big way. Mm. Uh, Michael Dunn is here. We're talking about the wealthy. We're talking about the wealthy today. And the wealthy during the Gilded Age, about 100 years ago. Off we go. We have California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with Time Saver Traffic and Weather Together. Then we will continue our conversation with Mr. Dunn. I remind you that Aaron Steed, CEO of Meathead Movers, will be with us at 505. All this straight ahead. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show. Happy Monday. You have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Tomorrow, hometown attorney Jeff Stolberg joins us. Annie Lorenzen wants to talk about the Pope. Okay, 
Uh, then let's uh, hear from some uh, downtown merchants and see if the parking situation has changed since recent city council action. We are with you weekday afternoons from 3.05 to 7 o'clock right here on KVEC. Aaron Steed from Meathead Movers joins us during the 5 o'clock hour. We are back with uh, Michael Dunn. We're talking about the wealthy. We're talking about the wealthy of the Gilded Age. We're talking about the current crop of now they've become billionaires. Uh, Also putting the local emphasis on the Hearst family. What about, I was trying to remember the name during the break, uh, Horatio Algier. Horatio Algier, rags to riches. Yeah, so even back then, you know, from some of the history books that I read a long time ago, that was really kind of a made-up or conflated story by all of these people that owned factories to get their people to work extra hard. And we have a current iteration of that, especially with people that are millennial uh, kind of age. It's called hustle and grind, which means if you work hard, you can do this. If you just work harder. I think that that narrative feeds the people that employ people more than it than its actual truth to the people that are working for a living. But if you go back to that era and you look, and that's when industrialization really kicked off after the Gilded Age and between 1880 and 1890, real wages for working class people increased 40%. Well, why is that the case? We started working in factories here. We got away from agriculture and we got away from just mining and we started making things. And so when we did that, we needed more skilled labor. So who were some of those skilled labor back in the day? It was Europeans that were leaving Europe because of uh, poor wages like the Irish, the Portuguese, um, Swiss. And then after World War I, we had a real influx by the time we really started building things. That's why we embraced um, immigration back then, because we didn't have enough skilled laborers here. We got them from Europe. Yeah, but now we've got a show every day uh, here on the station, Dave Ramsey from noon to three, and he he illustrates the path to being a millionaire. You can become a millionaire. And, and guess what? A millionaire nowadays is like making 100000 back in the day. I mean, when when I first started my advertising agency, I basically made the top 0.5% of the income earners in the United States. I, I had no wealth, and I never had more wealth because I plugged what I made back into my business. Wealth is what you don't have to work for and that you can invest in their tangible assets. So wealth and income, I think that uh, many of us today conflate wealth and income, and they're two separate things. I'm being attacked here on the text line. Oh, no. Um... You said you don't think Trump is a billionaire. I said that. Firstly, how do you know that for sure? Secondly, what does that comment have to do with this conversation? I'll answer the second part first. It was brought up because my guest suggested that Donald Trump was a billionaire. And I said, I don't think he's a billionaire because I've read that he has inflated his income over the years. He, he absolutely has inflated his income. So did people back in the day when they wanted to be on Forbes. It's just a comment. Yep, yep. And, um, but he was never as wealthy as he said, nor was William Randolph Hearst. So that was actually a common practice. I'm not trying to single out Trump, but that's the one that I've read about. When you're the ultra-wealthy, you want to be the king of the ultra-wealthy hill. You know, both Donald Trump and Hearst did something similar, as they both didn't want to give credit for being helped by their parents financially because it it wrecked their story of self-made men. Um, They were both given a huge hand up. 
Hearst actually took his father's wealth and made more money. Donald Trump, on the other hand, lost most of his father's money that he gave him. Text coming in wants to know your opinion of Jeff, Jeff Bezos. I think Jeff Bezos um, is really hardworking. I feel like he's done a great job with Amazon. However, I think that most of their money that they're making now is from what they call AWS, which is, which is basically... I think 30, 40% of the internet and e-commerce, they help run. Um, there's just not great money long-term in retail, whether it's online or brick and mortar. I think that was genius. I think that just like um, George Hurst, he bought the Washington Post because he wanted to control some of the narrative. Same thing with Murdoch. Same thing, the, the reason that Trump wanted Truth, Truth Social. He wanted to own the narrative. He got tired of the quote-unquote media telling the story. So is that why Musk bought Twitter? Absolutely. Okay. And it was the media program that he did the best on. The problem with Elon is Elon's um, on autism. Elon was really picked on and beaten up as a child. His father abused him. And he's dragging some of that mania and, and, and things that allowed him to survive as a child that has hurt the media company. If you want to join in the conversation, feel free to 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. As we talk about the wealthy with Michael Dunn, we've got Paul in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Paul. Hello, Dave. Hello, Michael. Hi, Paul. Hello, Paul. I'm going to go a little bit outside the box here and talk about artists who have acquired a great deal of wealth and you know, based on sure talent. And the first one I thought of, and this is going to be kind of weird probably, but Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, I mean, she was she grew up dirt poor. Yep. And she just had a talent for songwriting. And one of the, the shrewdest things she did was Elvis Presley wanted to record her song, I'll Always Love You. And Elvis had a thing where he, when he record a song he wanted the publishing rights and she wouldn't give it up and she kept it and then of course Whitney Houston comes along records that song and Dolly Parton said she made so much money off that song that she uh, was able to start Dollywood and she built that resort in this poor area of the state of Tennessee and just revitalized that whole area Michael she she made Branson, Missouri, Branson, Missouri. She was the first one in there. I'm glad, Paul, that you brought that up because I couldn't think of billionaires. But if you look now, a lot of a lot of women billionaires, or at least close to it, are professional athletes, are modern artists. But back in the day, mo artists like uh, Da Vinci and everything, they were commissioned by kings and queens. Hearst commissioned artists, and one of his... The people he made the most money from was an art auction house in New York called French and Company. They loved Donald because he made them wealthier than they could have believed. And certainly Taylor Swift has Taylor to be up and coming. That's one of the reasons that uh, Taylor Swift made time of the year. Not only did she do some altruistic things, but she also, like William Randolph Hearst, she paid her people demonstrably more than the average. What else, Paul? Yeah, and, you know, I'd like to just recognize that not only did Dolly Parton build that, you know, she helped Branson and built Dollywood, but she's very altruistic. Uh, she has a foundation where she uh, buys books for schools and, and kids who are uh, underserved. And so she, she gives away millions of dollars, and she also funded, she partially funded 
research into the, the COVID vaccine. I agree with everything you said, and I'm glad you called in and brought it up, Paul. Thank you. Paul, thank you very much for the call. Um, oh, I see. I'm, I'm trying to translate this text message. Uh, a lot of the animal clubs, I'm assuming that the listener is talking about moose, elks, the service clubs, kept women from becoming billionaires. Okay, I... Yeah, we can't. I don't know we, about we, that. We, we read the text, but we don't always understand them. Uh, well, speaking to Hearst, I mean, Hearst had one of the largest private zoos in America, and some of the animals are still running around. No, 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 no. We're oh, talking no, no, about, no. I no. understand. Okay. I was just trying to be facetious on talking about animals. Okay. <laughs> we'll take a break and regroup. I'm Dave Congleton, along with Michael Dunn. We'll be back for a final segment right after this. We are in the final few days for the seventh annual KVEC sock drop. We put out the call. Asking again for brand new unused socks for men, women, children. White socks, dark socks, a combination. We don't care. We just need new socks. We need warm socks. Not for us, but for those in need as we partner with our friends in the Five Cities Homeless Coalition. Come on by normal business hours to KVEC. We're at 3620 Sacramento Drive in San Luis, right across from the UPS Processing Center. Or go to the Five Cities Homeless Coalition at 100 South 4th Street in Grover Beach. All the socks go to the Five Cities Homeless Coalition. All the details online at 920kvec.com. Thanks in advance for supporting the 7th Annual KVEC Sock Drop. All right, we're talking wealth with uh, Michael Dunn. We're talking about uh, the wealthy from the Gilded Age, drawing comparisons to the wealthy today. In this last segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the future. If you want to join us, we need to hear from you now, please. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. What about the wealthy in Russia? What about... I assume they have wealthy people in China. Could government allow that? China has the second, uh, at least uh, like three years ago, they had the second uh, number of billionaires after the United States, and maybe they were only off like 60 to uh, 100. I can't recall the exact stats. But the problem with China is that they over-leverage their debt. They've got way more debt um, per capita than we do, much more. And then they instituted the single-child policy. China doesn't have enough people there, and they don't have enough ability to borrow to keep their economy going. Some geopolitical thought leaders are saying that China won't last a decade. Some say uh, two decades. Uh, Xi only listens to himself now because if you bring him bad news, he uh, puts you in a prison somewhere or makes you move to um, Japan to paint paintings, Jack Ma. Mm. (laughs) You know, so – uh, they have to bring in 90% of their food, and they have to bring in most of their ore to make everything. And that's going to be harder and harder, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Russia is basically a gas station with nukes, and basically Putin hes the, Putin is the wealthiest man in the world. He just has his wealth hidden and spread out among oligarchs, girlfriends. He's supposed to be a billionaire. He's he's the wealthiest person in the world. Makes Elon Musk look a little poor, but he's had to hide it. So Russia demographically, they might be around a bit longer than China because they have more natural resources. And the whole reason they want to get into Ukraine and whatnot is there's farmland there. 
you know, they're at risk. So both Xi and and Putin are more afraid of their own people than us. Is it easier to become a billionaire today than it was a millionaire 100 years ago? Absolutely, because if you look at the wealthiest person in America was John D. Rockefeller at oil. It, it was valued today at $21 billion. Elon Musk is about 14 times wealthier than Rockefeller was. And if you just look across the board, it's not even close. Hmm. And so they've gotten better in modern era about hiding wealth. They've got their more, the billionaires of the world now, they're not tethered necessarily by the geolocation that they do. They're tethered by, they all know each other. They all talk to each other. They all work together. And they all help each other hide money. Well, and, and look at, look at the, the nations, Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela. If we don't play their game, they're all getting together so they can still stay afloat. It Qu- happens on an individual level, not just a, a national level. Question on the text line. Uh, how does Mexico rate in number of billionaires? Well, uh, Carlos Slim was, I think, the fourth or the third wealthiest person around. And Carlos he, Slim? And he made his money off of, tele, uh, off of wireless and telecom. Um, however, you know... The U.S. is going to start pulling in more and more because the world is pulling in more and more. It's not just kind of uh, conservative leaders. It's everybody. And so the most profitable trade agreement that's ever existed in history is North American Free Trade Agreement that we redid. It's, it's the most. So we're going to start relying on Mexico more. We're going to start relying on Canada more. And, and I think that, you know, after World War II... We were the last person standing, and we had the best Navy in the world. Since then, we basically invented modern globalism because we protect the waterways so that pirates won't take everything that you have. A listener is asking whether or not you think globalization is a good thing. I think the thought behind it was a good thing. I think it'll never completely go away. But the pandemic taught companies like Apple, National Semiconductors, like we need to start bringing some of this back for the most important things, and we need to start manufacturing here. Um, you know, we've always, we've always chased cheap labor. I remember out, outside of my work in the government, I started in the fashion business, and, and fashion companies didn't make anything. They designed it, and they marketed it, and, we, and they always chased us like, well, let's go, to, let's go to South Korea for something. Oh, the wages come up? Then, like, let's go to... India for something. Oh, let's go to Pakistan. We're still chasing cheap labor. And so I think we're going to start seeing a lot of the big industrial companies to start do things internal more and more. That's a shift that I see that most people agree with me on. Hmm. All right, let's take another call. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832 for Michael Dunn. Here's Mark in San Luis. Hey, Mark. Hi, great show. Um, I've read in the Wall Street Journal, they said a substantial number of uh, companies are moving out of China, and those that are in the, currently moving out have plans within the next five years to move out into a sizable trend line. Do you have any comment on that, Michael? Yeah, for the last decade, the wealthy billionaire individuals have been trying to move out of China for a long time. The more power that President Xi gets, the more dictatorial he's become. And so the smart ones left earlier. But when Jack Ma, who was the wealthiest person in China at the time, because he basically started Alibaba, which was bigger 
um, than Amazon for a while. Uh, he spoke out. He got too famous, and now he's painting paintings in Japan. So, you know, they've been wanting to get out of there for 10 years. I think, I think if you look at what Xi did, uh, Hong Kong um, was one of the biggest financial trading sy- systems in, in the world. And in the last, since the pandemic, Xi's just killed that. So where's, where's the new Hong Kong? It's in Dubai. Okay. So th- th- does that also uh, go for American companies and other foreign companies moving out of China, that trend line? It's going to be longer uh, in China, but, but Putin, is he's proud, and he's telling his people, it's like, I'm glad that we got all those American companies out of here. If they want to be here, they have to follow my rules. And what he's basically doing is making his people feel better to come across this catastrophic reason of why all these Western uh, companies are fleeing his country. Interesting. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the show today. Uh, Mark, thanks for listening. Craig found a factoid. Craig? Yeah, it seemed like I didn't know if you knew who Carlos Slim was. He's a big uh, media mogul. I know now. And uh, he actually was the largest shell shareholder of the New York Times at one point. And he, a couple of years ago, he sold off half his shares uh, for a quarter billion dollars. Now he's the second largest stockholder in the New York Times. But he also, you know, tele, uh, I think it's Telemundo. All the uh, Spanish-speaking televisions, uh, all in South America. I forgot about that. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. Uh, one thing that it's interesting about uh, Carlos Slim and and his whole media exposure is, I think that he looked at what Murdoch was doing, you know, back in the day, and some and and Disney, and so he kind of you know made that up. I think his 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 risk is falling, but I think you will see more and more ultra high net worth people in Mexico. Mexico's big problem is they have to get the cartel. The cartels run the government there unless they go. So until they handle that, until they handle the pipeline to the U.S., they're going to, you know, not grow. And they're going to need the U.S.'s help to solve that problem. Another comment question coming in on the text line. Is it moral to hoard? Is it moral to hoard so much wealth? Is it right the rich keep getting rich, and the poor keep getting poor. Well, the last time we had this much disparity in wealth, and it's 10x more than it was back in the Gilded Age, we came up with antitrust and things of that nature. The, our federal government now really needs to tackle that. However, with our system and Citizens United, um, <laughs> they're having trouble doing that because our big companies and every in our legislative systems both the right and the left they're owned by the same the same wealth apparatus so what one who do you not hear um the democrats or the republicans go after defense contractors there's one in practically every congressional district in the united states and there's money to be made there and we can control that so i think we won't fix this problem i think it's it's abhorrent i think it's abhorrent that any individual not a company any individual can be a multi-billionaire, you can't spend that much money in a lifetime, and it, and it hurts all of us. And so I think you're going to start seeing a swing where, as a global community, and it's already happening, where all these countries are getting together saying, look, let's shut down the global tax havens and start this so that we can not have these global billionaires move whenever there's a te- new tax law coming in. And that's in the works, but that could take decades. Are you suggesting the masses are going to rise up? Well, that was the fear. Here's the pro- the difference between the U.S. and Europe. In Europe, when the masses drove up, they, they killed the kings and queens and they took over everything. Here, because of Horatio Alger and the sick, we all think that we can be the next billionaire. 
I don't think you're going to see us rise up, but it, you're, you're seeing, if you really look at um, some of the songs coming out, some of the writing, it's not just the right. It's not just everyone's getting tired of this, and we need to start taxing everybody in a fair way. I don't want to tax the ultra-wealthy too much because then they'll stop wanting to create wealth. I don't think it's all income tax. I think there needs to be a wealth tax. But I think, I think in the most wealthy uh, country in the world that it's – it's horrible how the working classes and the people that can't work are treated. Well, we had the whole Occupy Wall Street movement a few years back, and then that and that put a down. dent in it until we we forgot that everything's okay. And and of course, you know, when you've when you Facebook has more communications people than some countries do. So they say they want to be regulated, and then they go behind the scenes and lobby. They don't want to be regulated. No, nobody does. <laughs> William Randolph Hearst was a was a Democrat and more of a progressive until FDR came up with the federal income tax and he railed against that because it's money he couldn't spend on his artwork. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Michael Dunn, we always appreciate the conversation. I got about 30 seconds for a final thought, please. I appreciate you having me on today and to talk about this. It, it just, you know, I, I really didn't think, but but he was really the first billionaire from the Central Coast, and we live in the shadow. I would like to also advocate that the people at Hearst Castle, especially the tour guides and the collections people up there, are so kind. It's the holiday season. It's all lit up. You want to see one of the most spectacular places you'll ever visit in the world? Go up during the holidays and take your family on tour of Hearst Castle. You yeah. won't regret it. Those Christmas decorations are really darn impressive. And and why did Hearst do that? He liked to be on horseback ring, but he needed presidents statesmen, athletes come and visit him. That's what access and money give you. All right, Michael, thank you. Off we go. We got news, traffic, weather, Aaron Steed up next. I'd stick around. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.